The Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, and then 19 to 34, and can be found on page 970 of your church Bibles. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, for all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. That particular friend introduced me to sailing. He had a catamaran and he also had a yacht. And one thing I noticed about people who would go on his yacht for the first time was that they would start getting panicky once the wind picked up and the boat starts to keel 
and the water starts to wash across the decks. They feared they were going to capsize. They were unaware that there was, underneath the boat, a keel, which has two functions. The first is it prevents the boat from being blown sideways by the wind, and the other, the second, is that it holds the ballast that keeps the boat upright. In other words, the weight of the keel, except in, I suppose, really extreme or exceptional conditions, will counterbalance the force of the wind. In other words, it's more important to be aware of what is below the waterline, which you can't see, than what is above the waterline that you can. Now, translated into the Christian life, it is our secret life with God, our life with him that you can't see, that is more important and that will determine whether you sink or sail on. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shifts his emphasis between chapter 5 and chapter 6. In chapter 5, he's focusing upon the horizontal relationship. Love your neighbour as yourself. In chapter 6, the focus is on the vertical one. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then Jesus, in this chapter, is looking at three pillars of Jewish piety, or really expression of religious expression of their faith, giving, praying and fasting. Again, he's pointing out how his followers should be contrasting, contrasted with the Pharisees, who he calls hypocrites in respect to each of these three aspects. The Pharisees liked everybody to see that they were very religious. And then, of course, there are the irreligious, mentioned in verse 7, the pagans who had no reality. They just were going through the motions. They had, Jesus says, their vain babblings, their repetitive incantations, and their mere formalism. And as Jesus looks at giving, praying, and fasting in turn, his teaching follows the same pattern. Each section starts by saying, don't be like the hypocrites, verses 2, 5, and 16. Because in each case, he says, they have received their reward in full. And then he teaches how Christians should be different in verses 3, 7, and 17. Because then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verses 4, 6, and 16. Next week, we'll look at prayer and fasting. This week, we'll just focus on giving. Now, certain nations have a, a reputation for being rather reluctant givers. It's rumoured, apparently, that in the um, Scottish Constabulary, that it's reckoned that the most effective way of crowd dispersal is to take your helmet off and pass it round for a collection. <laughs> Fortunately, there are not too many Scottish people in our church, but they had a go at me after the first service. Um, anyway, we now go to Matthew 6 and page 970 and we read, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father. And verses 2 and 4 to 4 are a commentary on that first verse. Now you might remember that uh, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus had said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So how do we reconcile these two statements of Jesus? Well, the key distinction lies in the phrase, to be seen by them. 
Our motive for living the Christian life should be for the glory of God, not our own glory. It's not wrong for people to look at your life as a Christian and your lifestyle and conclude that there is something different about you. They may even kind of detect that you seem to live a much simpler lifestyle than your particular job might lead them to suspect. Maybe they conclude that you don't spend it all on yourself. Maybe you are for a financing Christian work of some kind. That's not wrong. It is, in fact, unavoidable. The key thing is that you're not going around making it blaringly obvious that that's what you are doing. You are not dropping big hints about your, how much of a benevolent benefactor you are. So we have the opportunity in this little uh, opening part of chapter 6 to see, first of all, how not to give, and then to see how to give. So it begins, verse 2, Jesus says, when you give. In other words, he's assuming that as a Christian follower of his, that we should give. Now, a devout Jew in his day would have probably ended up giving away about 17.5% of their income, 10% as a tithe, which was compulsory for the running of the temple. And on top of that were alms, voluntary giving for widows, orphans, and the sick, etc. Now, the rabbis didn't, um, didn't encourage ostentation at all. In fact, they forbid it in giving. But it wasn't the teaching of the rabbis that Jesus denounced. It was the practice of the Pharisees, who he describes as hypocrites. Now, hypocrites is a word derived from the Greek theater, meaning an action of pretending to be what you are not. You might recall that on signage for where, you know, directions to where a theater is, they have the symbol of the two overlapping masks, which is exactly what actors do. They are behind it, but they change role by adopting a different mask. And the Pharisees, it seemed, that, it liked, that they seemed to like making a great show of what they gave. And so they would give publicly in the synagogue, and they give publicly to people in need in the streets. They love to show. But was that the real them? Well, not when you read the rest of how they operated. But what does Jesus say? He says that they're looking for kudos. They're looking to be esteemed by the public. And that's exactly what they get. Some people will be impressed by what they do. But that's all they'll get. Often you see in the local press, you see a multi-million pound international company presenting a cheque to a small local charity. Usually, the physical size of the cheque is enormous, but the value of the cheque is rather minimal. They make millions, and the cheque is probably worth a thousand or two. It is very cheap PR. The locals will think, aren't they kind? But that's all they'll get. Or there are charities who record your name and sometimes the amount you give in their literature. But just consider the false motives at work there. The charity is, first of all, trying to shame you into giving in the first place. And then, once you have, it's pressurising you to up the amount to be commensurate with the highest level of givers. And, of course, the giver themselves are tempted. The temptation is to be recorded, to have your name amongst the great and the good, to simply look good. 
but that's all you'll get. The actual cause gets lost in mixed motives. Give like that, and we have received our reward in full. So how to give, verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, of course, Jesus is exaggerating. And he says we're not even supposed to know what we ourselves are giving. That is, that is impossible, if for no other reason that Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs always wants to know what your gift aid was when you fill in a tax return. But Jesus is suggesting here an attitude of self-forgetfulness to avoid falling into the trap of self-gratification and pride. You recall the parable of the sheep and the goats, the parable that uh, illustrates the day of judgment and how the righteous had long forgotten the good that they had done. They say to Jesus, when did you see me doing X, Y and Z? They just not remembered it. They thought it nothing special, just a normal part of Christian discipleship. So Jesus is saying that it is better just to keep it to yourself and then to forget about it. We give to Christ because of what he has given to us. We give in secret so that God and not us gets the glory. And if we give in secret, he does promise that there is a reward. Others may not notice, but God does. And he promises to reward our secret giving. Not that the reward is the motive, because the reward is none other than God himself. That he is the consummation of this life. He is the whole purpose of this life. When we die, we encounter him. He becomes our eternal friend. That's why we're here. It's the choice, the primary choice we're given to make in this life. Whether we wish to be aligned to him or whether we don't. The Christian life, then, is yet again rather upside down. As the Puritan writer Matthew Henry pointed out, the riches you impart form the only wealth you will always retain. The riches you impart form the only wealth you will always retain. That's quite a thought. Well, let's see in Matthew 16 to 34 what else Jesus has to say. In the weekend press, usually at the beginning of uh, every new year, the, uh, the columnists um, tend to write something about their hopes and fears for the year ahead. One wrote this, I spent a fair bit of time this week wandering around the sales trying to pretend I wanted something. What I most want is true love, long eyelashes and small feet, and you can't buy any of those in Harrods. You see, that is a rather honest and obvious realisation. Money cannot buy everything that we either want or need. In other words, money should not be the primary driver in life. It doesn't and it cannot deliver all that we need. And yet we hang on very tightly to our money. We're not easily prized from it. And there are three choices which Jesus presents us here in verses 19 to 24, which may well help us as we wrestle in that tussle. The first is, where are we investing? 
Where are we putting our energy, our focus, our money, our time, our desires? Jesus' advice, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, Despite all the ads you get in the weekend press, to invest here or invest there, to spend here or to spend there. Jesus is saying there's ultimately only two places that you can invest in. You can store up treasure on earth or you can store up treasure in heaven. Now, treasure is not only money. It's possessions, homes, power, priorities, status, fame, popularity, etc. These things, though, do not ultimately satisfy because they do not last. A clergyman once Ask at the funeral, how much did she leave in her will? And he replied, everything they always do. Or Graham Norton, in his kind of weekend agony uncle uh, column this week, wrote, the truth is, we all end up in bin bags. It doesn't matter who we were in life, in death, we are heaps of clothes for the charity shop, ornaments for friends and relatives, and the rest goes to the dump. Earthly treasure can just erode away or be stolen, Jesus says. Heavenly treasure is secure. Heaven knows of no decay, no downward cycle, no inflation, no stock market crash, no housing slump. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that on becoming a Christian you have to give all of your money away. There was private property in the early church. In Acts in Jerusalem, Mary, Jesus' mother, had her own house. Nor does it mean that we should not save, invest, fix up pensions and insurances. The Proverbs are littered with encouragement to be prudent. In Scripture, we have a duty to provide for our families. In fact, you know, for future generations... That's who's going to be looking after us uh, when we get old. The state won't have enough money for it. In fact, we are said in Scripture to be worse than unbelievers if we don't. And we are allowed to enjoy life. I mean, the first public outing Jesus had was to a party, John 2. And he had many breaks away from his work in order to relax and to be refreshed and recharge his batteries. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not store up treasure on earth? And the answer is simply, do not be a lover of money. Do not put money first. Why not? Because, A, to do so only makes you perpetually insecure, incomplete, like that journalist in her column that I quoted. It just doesn't in itself deliver all that you need. And B, sadly, Jesus also says that it can lead us away from God. So verse 21, for where your treasure is, your heart will also be. See, if you're focused on your wealth or your potential wealth, you will be focused on things like the average earning index to see how much you're earning compared to other people or the house price index to see how your primary asset is appreciating, or the FT100 or 250 or whatever it is that uh, you've got your ISAs in to plot their growth. 
You see, you can have time and energy drawn away from your primary focus, who should be God himself. John Stott writes in his commentary, materialism tethers our hearts to the earth. Materialism, investing solely in earth, is a bad investment because not only does it not deliver what we're looking for, it can also draw us away from the one person who can deliver the security that we need. So the conclusion, invest in heaven, not to earn salvation, but because it's an investment of our life which is then totally secure and our hearts will follow our treasure. For if we invest in the kingdom of God, our primary concerns will be for the fulfilment of the kingdom of God. Next, where are we focused? Verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, the picture here is of the eye being the source of light for the body. If we have clear sight, then we can navigate life well. If we are blind, we will have lots of knocks and bumps on the way, some of which may well harm us. Jesus is saying we need to be properly and healthily focused ourselves. But who are we following? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, many of us have tried to do that, tried to serve two masters. We think we know better than Jesus, but of course we don't. It is impossible to rank God and money as first equal. Because if we are devoted, literally gripped by materialism, by money, we will despise, literally, we will be indifferent to God eventually. And that's exactly what is happening when we get absorbed by materialism. We become apathetic towards God, which ultimately leads to disbelief. I wonder if you've ever spotted that trajectory at work. Also, talking to um, friends and members who come from former communist countries, they have observed that prosperity is a greater danger to authentic Christianity in those countries than persecution was. It can be hard to break out of the grip of materialism. It is an ever-present battle, and that grip can be broken. For example, when we ask ourselves, not whether I can afford something, but whether God wants me to have it or not. That, that kind of grip can also be broken if we have occasions to be particularly generous in our giving because that is an affront to materialism and it demonstrates that we rank God over money and material things have their proper place. For many of us, money brings Christian discipleship into a rather clear focus. We stop being fuzzy. We have to be clear in our minds what we should do and those secret actions take precedence. We wrestle with, is it the seen, the short term and for this world, 
or the unseen long-term for the other world that gets our primary vote? Esteem in the eyes of men or praise from the mouth of God? If we're able to resolve that battle, then there is, verse 25, no need to worry, Jesus says. And he rattles off seven reasons as to why that's the case, why we don't need to worry. Let's go through them very quickly. First of all, worry about earthly things and we risk missing out on the more important, the secure, intimate relationship with God himself, which is the whole point of this life. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Which doesn't mean that you don't think about the future and that you fail to be prudent and you don't plan, as we've already noted. And it doesn't mean that we're to be idle. After all, what he promises um, provides for the birds they have to work for. They have to go and forage for their, the seeds which they eat. But they don't worry. Nor does it mean that we don't have justifiable concerns as we go through life. It just means that we are now secure and safe in the hands of God. He has got hold of us, whatever comes our way. Secondly, worry is illogical, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, not much more valuable than they? Well, of course, as a human being made in the image of God, albeit a marred image, you are much more valuable than any animals. Thirdly, worry is a waste of time. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Of course you can't. Winston Churchill, when I, he says, when I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of an old man who said on his deathbed that he had had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which had never happened. Fourth, worry is incompatible with faith in Jesus. 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Worry is unchristian, verse 31. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The pagans, the unchristians, those who don't know and don't have a secure relationship with the real God. They run after these things. And your heavenly know Father knows that you need them. Worry is unnecessary. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, God promises to provide if we get our priorities right. And the Bible is full of such promises. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Psalm 84, 11. And seventhly, worry is incompatible with common sense. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Or if you're coming at, at it from the opposite direction, never let yesterday use up too much of today. So how do we stop worrying, or put away, put another way, how do we feel secure? And Jesus' answer is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you as well. 
It means rearranging our focus, our ambitions, our priorities, so that God and his concerns are first and foremost in our lives. When we know he's in charge and he has our best interests at heart, then however insecure our world may still be, we will know the security that comes from putting God first and his ways as our top priority. And we get to that point by having his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord. As you realised earlier, I grew up by the sea. I also trained to be a lifeguard. Now, if you're swimming and you're out of your depth and you think you're drowning, you will do all the wrong things. You'll flap around and use up loads more energy and eventually you'll tire and you'll drown. Or if a lifeguard comes to you, as soon as he gets near, you will grab him or you'll try to. He won't be able to help you if you do that, whether it's to the front or to the back, and he'll have to do something to hurt you, to make sure that you loosen your grip, because the only way he can really save you is if you give up trying to fight to save yourself, and you just rest there. And if you do that, he can just pull you in just by one hand on your chin, quite easily. And that's like with God. All the time we wrestle or we try to save ourselves, we won't. But if we stop and trust the one who's come to rescue us, he will save us. Amen.